So she says hello. Uh, Peggy and our daughter Christy uh, are traveling. Christy and Peggy spoke together at a women's conference out in western Pennsylvania this weekend, and I hear it went really well. Uh, yeah, you are, uh, ladies, you are in for a treat with Christy at the uh, ladies' tea. She is an amazing communicator. And uh, I, I don't know what it is about my kids, but yes, I do. They take after their mother. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I'm really thankful for how God is using our children. And uh, Todd, you know, of course, and Christy, and also Travis, as he's ministering the Lord today in, in Iowa. But thanks for praying for our family, Peggy and Christy. When Christy's home from the field, she is a missionary in Germany. Uh, she has to travel and visit a lot of her supporters. So they're in western Pennsylvania, and they have to get to... Uh, her next stop, I think, is Terre Haute, Indiana. I am not sure where Terre Haute, Indiana is, but uh, they'll find it, I'm sure. And then they're going to head to Iowa, where Christy's speaking at a, uh, uh, at a church missions conference, one of her largest supporting churches. And uh, they'll be able to catch up with our son Travis and his family and, uh, and, and, and catch up and then be back. So appreciate your prayer for our family and, and also for me as I travel as, as well. Um, Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke, or excuse me, we, I'll talk about that in a minute. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. This passage that we're going to look at today, uh, I, I really believe that uh, God uh, may use this passage to help us with one of the things that may be, um, may be one of the biggest issues that Christians today struggle with. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, Andrew read the passage in Luke about how Christ had said, you know, first of all, there was a man that came to Christ and said, Lord, I will follow you. And Christ said, oh, really? You know, birds of the air have nests, you know, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then it, it, the indication is he left. And then he said to other people, follow me. Both of those other people responded by saying, Lord, I will, but let me first do what I want to do. And so what I want to do is talk with you about what I think may be the biggest choice. Now I'm going to talk, this because this passage does, to talk with you about choices this morning. And I'm not talking about like, you know, like what restaurant to go to, steak or seafood, or uh, whether the Dodgers or the Red Sox are going to win the World Series, or what we should wear today. I'm talking about the major choices. And this passage talks about that, that really it boils down to that our choices are, are really that we have the opportunity to make a decision. And again, the text talks about that, to make a choice, to live for God in what absolutely can be considered as a me-first world. I think the passage that we read in Luke is so typical, where Christ would challenge us to follow him, and a typical response is, well, yeah, sometimes, yeah, I will, but let me first do what I want to do. I know just shooting straight with you and to tell you honestly about my life, that decision, that little icon or that picture that's now down there in the corner of the slides is exactly my biggest struggle. Am I going to do what God wants me to do or I'm going to do what Mel wants me to do? I have the opportunity to travel and talk to a lot of young people especially, and I'm convinced that we have grown up in this culture where everybody has told us Honey, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to major in? You know, in all of our lives, we've been told that it's what I want to do is what matters. And that's where the most fulfillment is. And 
the truth of it is, a lot of times we don't have a clue even what we want to do. And that's why I think the great decision, the great choice of our day is that am I, am I going to do me first or am I going to put God first and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do. And this passage talks about that. So I'm going to talk with you about living for God in a me first world. Again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to First uh, John chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading. And uh, I'm reading from the New King James this morning. Again, Second, First John chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading at verse 12 and read down through verse 17. That's our block of, of the paragraphs that we're going to read today. First uh, John 2, let me start reading at verse 12 down through verse 17. John writes and says this, I write to you little children, because your sins are forgiven, are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children, again, because you have known the Father. I have written to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men, because you are strong, abides in you, and you have overcome the, work, the wicked one. Verse 15 or the things in the world. <laughs> if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he, the one who does the will of God, abides forever. That's our passage. Let me pray, and we're going to look at a few principles, actually some imperatives from this text that I think are going to be incredibly practical, at least, at least for my life, and I hope for your life as well. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And uh, we know this passage. We've read it, and we're studying through as a church, First John. And so, God, I pray that you'd use your word today. Even may, maybe some of this is familiar. Some of this may be a little bit different take, but God, that's, that's okay. And Father, I pray that you'd use your word, and even right now, help us, help me, my heart, to be open and receptive to what you have for us. And God, again, I pray that you'd use your word and, and do something, do what you want to do in hearts and lives, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I, I think there's some uh, interesting observations that I just want to make to you about this passage as we start. First of all, if you were to just read this chapter, several times John uses the phrase, little children. I, I just want to say, as we get started, this is probably as personal, this passage, as, as John gets. He is older in his life, and he is referring to his readers as little children. And there's something that's very special about that. Now, in saying that, the first few verses that I read identified some groups of people. And, and I, I think there's something that's interesting, even that delineation of little children that we'll get to in just, in just a moment, that I think is incredibly practical for our lives today. One other observation, and I mentioned as I got started that I, I just brought the New King James. I'm not sure what version you have with you. Some of the newer translations don't, in English really don't word it the way that this one does. But I, let me just point out something to you. That first paragraph, that first few verses, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, 
where it says, I write unto you little children because you're sitting, you know, all of that passage. If you were to look at verse 12, all right, have your Bibles open. Verse 12 says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write to you fathers. Verse 13, I write to you young men. Verse 13, I write to you little children. Verse 14 says, I have written unto you. He changes the tense in verse 14. I have written to you. And so one of the things that I think John wants us to understand, and folks, in this language, when the readers got this epistle from the Apostle John, I think they got it, and that is these instructions are for now. I'm writing, but you're going to read this at some point in the future, and you're going to realize that I wrote this a while ago, and here's what he's saying. That what we're talking about now works right now. It's worked for now. But I want you to keep on doing this. That these instructions by inspiration of God is something that God has for our lives from now on. <clears throat> so as we, folks, as we talk about choices today, I think it's important to understand, again, as we get started, that this is something that God has for us now, but also to keep on doing as we go through our lives and to keep on living for God and making godly choices. I'm going to talk with you about, about three imperatives, if you will. Number one, making godly choices begins now. I just talked to you about that. And continues throughout the various stages of life. I write to you little children. I write to you young men. I write to you fathers. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Living, making godly choices also means actively, intentionally, actively and intentionally. Pastor Todd talked with us a little bit about that before. Loving God more than we love the world. That is a huge deal. We do. The world is um, seducing us. The world is tempting us. The world is in sometimes very attractive. The world is doing that. The enemy is doing that. We'll talk about that. And it's very easy for us to say that and to love the world more than to love God. And then number three, it requires a lifetime commitment to do the will of God. And so we're going to end up by this deal about choices. Folks, let's pick. Let's make our choices. Let's pick what matters for eternity, something that's going to last. Let's pick that for our life. Let's pick. Let's make a choice about things that are going to last, things that are going to matter. And I think that's what this passage is pointing out to us. So let's get started. Number one, begin now. Making godly choices begins now and continues throughout the various stages of life. And I read you the passage, and I talked with you a little bit about that. John wrote, and he says, I write unto you uh, little children, I write unto you young men, I write unto you fathers, and then he changes, I have written. And I think it's this, pay, pay attention now, but then also keep implementing, keep living out those choices in our lives. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that this passage em emphasizes that, that you should implement what I wrote to you in your daily lives. In other words, keep living that way. And then he writes about these three groups of people, little children, fathers, and young men. The danger, folks, I think, and, and, and even for me, remember I mentioned that this is a very personal letter John is writing, but I think the danger is like to say, well, I'm not in that category, so I can blow that off. That is not the point. I think as we look at the passage 
And as John's readers, first of all, he uses the phrase little children other places. In fact, even here in chapter 2, he uses that in other places. So I think, I think here it is. If you are in that category, it makes sense to pay attention. If you are um, living with somebody, or you know somebody, or if you love somebody that it's in that category, like our own children or our own family members, that it's paying attention. But I think there's also an indication here that at one stage or another, like for instance, there's a well-known um, older Bible commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, that wrote that this may actually be spiritual stages of our lives. In other words, I think, I think this. God doesn't want us to get off the hook because he's writing little children and young men or fathers. That's not me. I can forget about that. I don't think that's it at all. I think John is writing this to his readers and by inspiration of God to us and he's saying, pay attention. There's some very practical advice here about how this works at these stages of our lives and how we can help others and how we can apply that in our journey. Remember that deal of, of now but also ongoing in life. So let me look quickly at these three categories with you. Let me just look quickly at these three categories. He writes, I write to you little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake, because you have known the Father. Now, in these verses, 12, 13, and 14, if you were to look at verse 12, I write to you, little children, and then if you write down, object, or look down at the next verse, at the end of verse 13, he says, I write to you, little children. Actually, in that language, he uses different terms, which is not a mistake. The first one is just children. That's a word. I came into church this morning, and... Uh, yeah, priorities, the first people I greeted were my grandchildren, right? I mean, I hadn't seen them in a few days, so I saw Evie, Evie and I saw, you know, Addie, and I saw the boys. And, and it's like there's, there's, an, there's, right, an affection, like little kids, man, it just, it touches your heart. And John writes that way. But then he also changes, and he writes to us as little children. And the idea here is that, okay, the first word is a word of affection and a word of endearment, but the second word is more like, as a learner, you are under authority. You are listening to instruction. And I think both of those are good for us to realize that God is writing to us as little children, and John, the Apostle John is using that terminology, endearment and affection and that wide open arms. But also now it's like, it's like, pay attention. This is serious. And here's what he writes. He says, he says this, that I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I think there's a lesson of children that we can learn today. And number one is that if you've, if you've ever been around children, or I'm going to smile real big and say this, or if you've ever been a child, you probably get this, right? And that is children can understand when they mess up. In fact, that's kind of the first rule of parenting, right? Point that out to them, right? I remember when our kids were little, I think Peggy told our kids, maybe not every day, but a lot of days, Todd could tell you the stories, about how she would uh, pray for them that if they got in trouble or if they did something was wrong, Peggy would pray for them that they actually would get caught. 
She prayed for that. I think she's not here to defend herself. I think she still prays that way for me, to be real honest with you. As I travel, I'm, you know, last weekend Peggy and I were together, but I'm gone from my wife. I think, I think Peggy's out in western Pennsylvania. I think she's praying for me. You know, Mel's home watching sports, but if he, uh, if he screws up, I think she prays that I get caught because there is something about that, that children understand, yeah, they're sinners. I, I came to Christ. I've told you about this before. I came to Christ when I was a little kid. I grew up in a Christian home, and I grew up with godly parents, and I thank God that my parents pointed out when there's things in my life that were wrong. I do, but when I came to Christ, I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew that I needed to be forgiven. And I think children can understand that, and I think children can teach us that. I think it's the world. We're going to look at that in a minute. I think it's the enemy that tells us, you're okay. You're okay. I think it's a good thing when God, folks, by the Holy Spirit of God, by the Word of God, when God convicts us of our sin, I think it's important for us to understand that that is a very good thing. God sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to forgive us our sin. God want, that's what First John writes about that <coughs> a lot, that God wants us to forget, to, God wants to forgive our sin, to cleanse it, to get, take away all unrighteousness. And that's a very good thing. And then he writes this, because your sins are forgiven, you for his name's sake. That's a practical set of instructions for children too. Maybe your dad didn't do this. Normally, it's dads who do this, right? But um, I probably did it. I probably played this card some in my life. Don't forget, you're a walker, and you are representing the walkers. Don't forget that. I probably played that card more than I should. But God says, you know, it's one thing. You know, I was looking up last night. I mean, I last night was like a sports uh, fan, or yesterday was like sports fan heaven, right? college football and baseball playoffs and, you know, basketball was on and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was just getting ready for this. So did you notice that a lot of athletes today, right, a lot of teams have uh, the name of the player, you know, on the back. You know, big letters like, like Walker on the back. And I'm not, Dan or others, I'm not, I'm not making a political statement here. But I, I read this just yesterday. Do you know the Yankees don't? And years ago, the owner of the Yankees said, we're not going to put the players' names on our jerseys because we want them to play for the Yankees, not to play for themselves. And if you're not a Yankees fan, then forgive me for that dumb illustration and let's move on. Um, but here's the thing. I, I think children understand or can understand um, that they're living for something, someone greater than themselves. Their heavenly father. And I, I, I love this about this account. And so, yeah, there will be um, um, times in life that we sin. There will be times in life that we mess up. But to realize that we represent our heavenly father. I, I love the passage. And I, I remember a few months ago I shared this with you. It's in Acts 11, actually, where it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, I think it motivates us. I think it motivates children, and I think it motivates us to realize that whose name is on our jersey. For his 
namesake. And to realize that we're here to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and our heavenly Father. And I think that's a pretty good advice for all of that, who they represent. And then it says, actually, it says this twice in this list. I, I think, again, I've said this to you already a couple times. I think it's interesting what he says to the individual age groups. He says, because your sins are forgiven and because, for, for your namesake, but also because you have known the Father. And folks, I, I just want to tell you that that hit me as, as I was getting ready for this message as incredibly practical and incredibly motivating and encouraging to me too. Here, let, let me tell you something. The word known there is not the word that I intellectually know. Like I know two plus two equals four or that I know I'm a resident of Pennsylvania. It's a word that means experienced knowledge, that you've learned by experience. And so one of the things I think it's a lesson, if you're a parent, if you deal with children or young people at all, I think it's really important to help them in this matter of making choices, to help them see that the Heavenly Father is active in their own lives. And that brings us, I think, to a very... Uh, a, a very practical aspect of this teaching because they have known the Father. There are people today that um, that would not be, folks, right? That would not be a good human illustration because they look at their Father and they realize their Father has weaknesses or absent or left or whatever. But folks, I think it's important to understand that we're talking here about our Heavenly Father who loved us so much that he sent his son, our heavenly father. Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is the father to the fatherless. And one of the great things about John writing to little children is his talking about, folks, you can experience your heavenly father. And I was telling you about that song, 10,000 Reasons. I had now, you know, to write a journal and to write down the reasons for the praise. But if we, we need to raise our kids, we need to teach our kids, we need to teach ourselves this lesson as we go through life, and that is to watch for signs of the Heavenly Father actively, experientially involved in our lives. I think that's what he's saying to little children. Look around. God is at work. Humor me for a minute. Look back. I'm not saying you to write it down, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not asking for testimonies. Look back even this week. Has God, has the Heavenly Father been actively, experientially involved in your life? He has, right? And it's pretty good for us to remember that. That is very childlike of us to be able to see and to be able to experience the Heavenly Father. And that's, that's a great lesson for us as we contemplate this idea of choices he says next he says i write to you fathers again same word because you have known him and then he adds this who's from the beginning i think one of the great things about fathers and todd will probably say amen to this is that fathers you know you've gotten to be a father because you've gone through some stuff in other words fathers are old that's the part he'll probably amen you know fathers are old You've known him who is from the beginning. 
And fathers, if you're a father, if you have a father, if you know a father, if you act like a father, then I think we're going to come to this conclusion that what God wants from fathers is to live faithfully for God over the long haul, that we can instruct, that we can tell stories, God stories, of what it was like over the long haul. If you've ever been around your dad or a dad as they get older, don't dads do that? Tell stories. I remember the days where, you know, we'd have to walk to school, you know, five miles in the snow, both ways uphill, you know, and tell all the stories. But there's something about that. The dad's fathers can look back and have the stories, have the faithfulness. And so fathers, I think, that faithfulness over the long haul, and that fathers can do that. And John is right, right to you fathers. And I think all of us can look at that and say, yeah, God has been faithful to us, so let's us be faithful about what God wants to do in our lives, what God is doing in our lives as well. And then he says this, I write to you young men, young men. And then he says this, that because you have overcome, and these aren't necessarily male things I want you to know here. That's not the language that's here. But he says, because you have overcome the wicked one, and because you are strong, let me, let me just stop there for a minute. Humanly, physically, that makes sense, right? I mean, who do we send off to war? Young men, right? Last night, I was told yesterday was a uh, sports fan like, 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 like holiday yesterday, right? And so last night, I, I didn't make it. I went to bed, but I was watching uh, NBA a little bit last night. And LeBron James and the commentators are talking about how old LeBron James is. So we, we get that. Like, what is he, 38? 33. 33? Is everybody is 33? 30, you know, I'm like, wait a minute. So, but, but think about that for a minute. We understand that we send young men to war. We send young, young men or athletes. Why? Because they're strong and they have that, that, that sense of victory. Now, here's the point, and you've probably noticed already I'm raising my voice a little bit. Well, here's why. In my world, young men or young people are often the people who walk away from God. And I think this passage is telling us they don't have to and that we need to be young and we need to raise young people who are strong and who overcome and who realize that, uh, that we're in a fight. I think our culture, one of the things that culture says is just, is just make it easy, things will be okay, that is not how life is. Life is hard, and there's going to be times that we're going to have to stand for God and, and, and have the courage to stand for God, and that you don't have to mouse out. You don't have to walk away. You don't have to you run away. You don't have to do that. That young men are strong, and they can, they're not weak, and you can overcome. <clears throat> I think it's also important to understand, because you've overcome the wicked one, he says that twice in those verses as well, I think... I think it's really important for us to understand that the Christian life today is a battle, that our adversary, the devil, is wicked, that he has an agenda that's kind of like the language that's there, and that we want to raise young people who are strong enough to fight spiritually, who are strong enough to stand, who are strong enough to over, overcome. And then this is in the middle of all of that. You know, God... 
never left us in a battle without preparing us for that. He writes this, and the word, he says, and because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. So how do we help our young people? How do we help you and me? How do we help make a stand for God when it seems like, and to make godly choices, when it seems like everyone around us is struggling and everyone else is backing away and running away? How do we do that? I think, very practically speaking, it's to make sure that God's word abides in us, is at home in our lives. Because it's God's word that tells us what God wants us to know. God's word tells us how to, how to live our lives. It's God's word that gives us the strength to overcome the wicked one. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist said, that I might not sin against thee. The word of God at home, I love that, abides there. It's not just a knowledge, but it's there. It takes up residence. It works. It lives. It's there so that God's word permeates every area of our life. And so no wonder he writes to young men and says, you're strong, you've overcome because the word of God. And again, very, very practically speaking, that's what God wants from all of us is that we study the word of God, that we learn the word of God, that we meditate on the word of God so that God's word is at home in our lives and can help us with the choices and the struggles that we have in life today. I write to you, little children, I write to you, young men, and I write to you, fathers, not necessarily an age category, but of application of things in our lives. And, to cut, and just quickly, I think to put all that together, let me go back to what I highlighted before, and that is, I think what God wants us to see is that God is actively involved in our lives, that God is actively involved in our lives and will help us make the choices. And that brings us to number two. Making godly choices means actively and intentionally loving God more than loving the world. Why do I say that? If you look with me at verse 15, 2 John, excuse me, 1 John 2, 1 John 2, verse 15, it says this. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, when this gets started, notice what I said the principle is means actively, making godly choices means actively and intentionally loving God more than loving the world. If you look at the beginning of verse 15, folks, the beginning of verse 15, it says this, do not love the world. As I was studying this passage, I, I have to admit that out of all of this, this is the phrase that, um, you know, God turned on the headlights, God turned on the, the blinkers, and it's like, Mel, pay attention to this. Because I'm not sure that I ever paid attention to what that really means. The word love there is the same word, agape that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. It's not that I like that a lot. It's not that I have an affection for the Yankees or the Phillies or for the Michigan Wolverines or that I hate Ohio State, I do. But it's not, it's not any of that at all. It's the intentional, it's the active, the sacrificial love. <clears throat> and so John's instruction is like, don't choose to love the world. Don't make that choice. Which brings us to the theme of the message this morning, is the choices. 
Do not choose to love the world or the things of the world. And then he says this. If you underline in your Bibles, and, 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 and I do just to draw my attention to some things, and I know a lot of you are using electronics where the text can, where the, 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 the app can highlight this or whatever. It said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I think, again, by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God convicting us of things in our lives, that that's something that God needs to do in our lives, certainly not Mel Walker in our lives. And that is, do we historically, habitually love the world more than we love God? I think we have to ask ourselves, is, is Jesus Christ really my personal Savior? Have I made that decision? Or is that something that I haven't done yet? Because I do love the world that way. And so I think, again, it's practical, but to realize that God wants us to make that choice to love the world. There's a ver- you can just write this down. But there's a, there's a, a, a person in, uh, in the New Testament, and you can hear, read about this in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, where it writes about a guy by the name of Demas. And it says that Paul wrote to Timothy about Demas. And Demas, one of the things that's interesting about the guy by the name of Demas in the New Testament is that he's often mentioned in the same passage with Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke made a choice. I'm going to turn away from what the world has to offer for ministry. At the end, what we know of Dr. Luke is that he was involved in ministry. Demas, it says there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says, Demas has forsaken me, deserted me, walked away. Demas has forsaken me because he loved the present world. So here's, here's where it gets incredibly practical. Demas points that out. It is possible, folks, to make a decision, to say, I'm going to love the world. And that end up can be the decision that takes us away from God, that keeps us away from God, and keeps, makes us ultimately desert our faith and to walk away from God because we've loved the world more than we love God. That's how practical this passage is. It really is. And if it's convicting, it's convicting because God and the Holy Spirit is there pointing that out. Verse 16, I'm going I'm to do this quickly. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let, let God sink that in your heart and your life. But then this, for all that is in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. I'm just going to give you a quick chart. On the notes, if you got a copy of the yellow sheet, then you have this chart that's there. <coughs> and... Um, um, in the time that I have left, I'm probably right now kicking into my inner youth pastor because I think in charts and all of that. So let me just give you a chart that, that in the past I have done that in other occasions. But it really is interesting to me that this passage has all that is in the world and then gives us these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And again, I know some of you have seen this before and this is not necessarily original for me but let me just say as emphatically as I can that is how our adversary works if you were to look at the world today the world is probably going to tempt you or the world is probably going to assault you in one or all of these three areas number one is the lust of the flesh have you ever noticed that Satan's strategy today is to, is to say to you, you have to have 
this. The lust of the flesh. It appeals to your flesh. You have to have this. And it's an area of temptation. Number two is that the world also tempts us in areas today with lust of the eyes. In other words, probably almost every commercial that's out there today says that uh, what the world has to offer looks good to you. That's what Satan's strategy is, is to make that, the sin, the what's wrong, the temptation, look good. You know, that's a, an incredible illustration of what's going on in our country for uh, the whole lottery thing this weekend, right? I mean, the chances of that are like, like less than one in all of the people of the United States. But hey, I could have that. The world, I could have that. I could, all my problems would be solved if I, you know, I spend two bucks for a lottery ticket or whatever and I, and I win a billion. And, and what, what the world, Satan's strategy is, you've got to have this. Make the world look good. And then also it's the pride of life. In other words, Satan's strategy is to say, is to build to, you, is to your pride, to my pride. It's to say this, that... Um, you look good. The world is here to make you look good and to, to build up my ego and, and all of that. Let me, let me just finish the chart, and I know you know this. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, it's where Satan was tempted, or Satan, that Eve was, was uh, tempted by Satan as a serpent. In Genesis 3, let me just read to you, and again, I, some of you have seen this chart before. But in Genesis 3, let me read verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree, this is when the serpent was tempting Eve in the Garden of, of, in, in the garden of Eden, in the, the, the tree of the, that was in the garden. And in verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it looked good, pleasant to the eyes, it was, the food was, you need to have this. And then the world looks good to you. And then it was to make you wise to make you look good that was still all of that was satan's area of temptation that is also the same that satan the same strategy that satan used to tempt christ turn with me to luke chapter 4 real quick would you do that for me and let me just read this passage to you it's the same strategy folks and i know i'm probably not doing this justice because i'm doing this quickly but you have the chart and you can read the phrases that are down there. In Luke chapter 4, it's when the Lord Jesus Christ himself was tempted. Luke chapter 4. Let me start reading at verse, at verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled for the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, being tempted <coughs> for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, this is Christ himself, and when, he, when they had ended those days, he was hungry. Right then, when he was the most vulnerable physically, humanly, the devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Satan's first area of temptation was to, was to say, You have got to have this. You could take care of this by solving your basic need first, the, the, the physical need first. Um, Jesus answered, verse 4, and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Verse 5 says this, Then the devil, taking up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, All of this authority will I give you and their glory. 
For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship, if you will worship before me, all of this, takes up the high mountain, shows him everything, and says all of this will be yours. All of this, doesn't, doesn't the world look good? The same exact strategy. Jesus answered and said to him, verse 8, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash. So even dash your foot against the stone. Even Satan was quoting, misquoting Scripture. Verse 12 says, Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So even then, Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Throw yourself down. Your angels will come. You'll be the hero. You'll be the star of the show. And everybody will, everybody will worship you because of what happened. Again, the chart says that basically Satan works in life the same way. All that's in the flesh, the lust of the flesh, all that's in the world, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is that Satan works the same way. Now here's one more point by the magic of PowerPoint. And that is it's important to remember, folks, that even Jesus resisted the temptation by using the word of God. Remember before, I write unto you, young men, because you're strong, because you've overcome the wicked one, because the word of God abides in you. God has not left us here, even though we are in a battle, an incredible spiritual battle with a very strong and organized enemy with an agenda. God has not left us here without weapons. And our weapon is the Word of God, and it's the Word of God, the theme for all of this, is at home in our lives, and can, even Christ has helped us resist, the, it, it, it gave Christ a weapon to resist the temptation as well. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So it's important to understand that, that we do actively and intentionally love God more than the world, and how do we do that, I think, is by making the decision, and one of those things is to make the decision, to, I'm going to make the right kind of choices. And how do we even know what that is? By the word of God being in our heart and being in our mind. One more and I'm done. One more principle. And that is that it requires a lifetime commitment to do the will of God. Making wise choices requires, if you go back with me to 1 John 2, making godly choices requires a lifetime commitment to do the will of God. And here's what the text says. The world is passing away. It is. And I think it's important to, to stop there. Let's camp for that if, right there for a minute. We're talking about choices today. The very first slide, I talked about choices. And I said it's not like, you know, steak or seafood or what restaurant or what to put on today. But the choices, are we going to live for God or are we going to live for ourselves in a me-first world making godly choices? And as we end today, now it's been, you know, half hour or longer since then. I think it's important that it, it boils down to this. The world, even though Satan's strategy is to make what the world has to offer incredibly attractive, that the world is passing away. All the, I'm not here to 
rail on the lottery. I'm not. But listen yesterday about how many lottery winners in the past are now bankrupt. It's easy to be seduced. It's easy to see the world and to become attracted by what the world has to offer. And I think it's important that, that we understand that God's word says that that is passing away, that that's not what's going to go to heaven with us. That's not what's going to last for eternity. And then this, it says this in the end of verse 17, but he who the one who does the will of God abides forever. Um, years and years ago, I claimed that verse as my life verse, and I actually have this in a plaque that I've had every single office that I've ever had in my 40-some years of ministry. The one that does the will of God abides forever. I uh, found on the internet um, D.L. Moody's grave. I've actually been there. Uh, He's buried in in Massachusetts. This is his tombstone, D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists humanly and, and spiritually the world has ever known. The founder, right, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, the founder of what's now Moody Press. Great revival and thousands came to Christ under his ministry. Moody could have been certainly uh, uh, attracted and tempted by what the world has to offer, but that verse is there on his uh, gravestone as well. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And so out of all of this, it comes back to this idea of choices. And folks, I would rather just common sense. I would rather pick something that matters, and that matters for eternity, if we're going to make choices in our lives. And I think that's what the Apostle John is saying. The world can certainly look attractive to you. And it's always been those same areas. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's always been. Even the garden, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the world has that. What God has to offer is what lasts for eternity. The world shouts, me first, let me first, I'm going to do what I want to do. I think what God is saying to us today from 1 John is, do God's will, do the will of God. That's how our lives matter. That's how what we do matters for eternity, is do what God wants us to do. And all three of those could come, but how do we even know that? Because God's given us his word. God has showed us what he wants us to do. It's important, like young men, God's word abides in us. Christ resisted the temptation by the word of God, that the will of God is what's going to matter and what's going to matter for eternity. Yeah, we have a lot of choices to make, and we very much live in a me-first world. But if we can make the choices of saying, I'm going to I'm going to live for God, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to build that into my family in different stages of my life, then I think it can be very practical and certainly has been for me let me pray father thank you for your word and uh, we know this is a familiar passage i mean we've read heard this a lot of times before but there's some yeah there's some hard things some serious things here but also god there's some things that are that are incredibly practical about life about living in in our world today and so god i i can picture the Apostle John writing and 
Mel, sometimes you need the instruction as a little child, and sometimes you need the instruction of a young man, and sometimes you need the instruction of the father. But what I want you to see is that God is actively involved in your life, and so choose that. I think the Apostle John is writing, and he says, yeah, the world is passing away, but, and we are in a, in a battle. We are in a warfare, and Satan w- works this way, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but choose the right things. Choose godly things. And I think if John were writing today, he'd say, do the will of God. Do what God wants you to do. And so, Father, I pray that um, every day we go through life, we have a chance to make intentional, purposeful choices. God, I pray that we would be committed, me, and that all of us here would be committed to knowing what your, is, what your will is, doing what your will is, in our heart, purposefully, intentionally saying, God, I know there's areas of temptation. I know there is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist the temptation the way you taught me. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But Father, I'm going to make the purposeful choice to live for God, to live godly in my life. And Father, I pray that you'd work in all of our hearts as we close the service. God, I just pray that you would use this and make it a very practical lesson in our hearts and our lives today as we choose to live for God. Father, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Hello, how you doing, bud? Thank you, Mel. Thank you. Well, praise